decided without parents, without the matchmaker. On the other hand, did Adam and Eve have a matchmaker? Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working out. I'm Matt and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 to 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. Two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, And sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the album, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bot the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is Pulp Fiction. All right, Pulp Fiction, the 1994 Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, It is fascinating to me that there has been sort of this ongoing debate on the internet I don't know, probably since 1994, about what the good 1994 movie is. Is it Pulp Fiction, the the sort of whiz-bang, ultra-fun, highly referential, clever, exciting, unusual Palm Door winner? Is it Forrest Gump? Is it The Shawshank Redemption, which happens to be number one on the IMDb Top 250 and has been for forever? And there's sort of been this running conversation about which one of these is the, the number one from 1994, and the AFI still puts Pulp Fiction third among this group, let alone what the Oscars did. This is, it is endlessly fascinating to me that this is where we are. Or is it Lion King? Which? <clears throat> which didn't get a Best Picture nomination. Yeah. Uh, what you did with Forrest Gump there, right? partially expected you to do with Pulp Fiction in general and just like move on <laughs> which I thought would have been funny too but I, the right answer to me has always been Pulp Fiction. It's always um, been Pulp Fiction and I, w- I will not hear arguments for Forrest Gump I will listen to arguments for Shawshank and then just sort of like nudge you away but If someone says Shawshank Redemption at least you can help them if they say Forrest Gump there's nothing you can do for them like you, what are you going to say to these people? There's nothing to say. There's nothing to be said if you think that is the one. Um, And with all that said, you are are right a little bit that I am cooler on Pulp Fiction than I used to be. I still think it is a great movie. I still think it is a 
an absolute triumph of the time. I still think it's Tarantino's best. All of all of these things that people say about it, I am on board with it. Um, when I say I've cooled on it, I mean that I no longer think what I thought three or four years ago that this might be like the best movie ever made during my lifetime. And the reason I think that is I've now like seen, I don't know, more than like 55, 60 movies in my life. So I've grown up a little bit, but like this is a, it's, it's still a historically important movie. It's still a great movie. Um, and it fascinates me because it's, it's not that directors can't have a situation where one of the things they make is just so, so far above the rest, but it's interesting to me that Tarantino is one of those people for me, where it seems to me that he's like, this is, this to me is such an unimpeachable classic, and then he's got a couple others which I think are just extremely, extremely, extremely strong movies, and then so much of the rest I think is sort of pandering to a demographic that's 40 and doesn't know what to do with that, so like, that's that's sort of where I am with him, and I still think that this sort of refraction of Godard is is very exciting. Um, made at a time when Godard was not necessarily all that fashionable anymore. Um, he's doing all sorts of interesting things in terms of reference, and that's before that turned out to be like the only thing he knew how to do. Um, and it it wears these references in such an exciting and interesting way. Um, Bruce Willis picking up the katana in honor of all of these samurai movies, like, okay, I dig it. Like, it's fun, it's interesting, it's the unexpected choice. Um, Uma Thurman is playing Anna Karina from Band Apart. That's, it's the same hair, it's a similar outfit, it's, but it's, it's a, uh, it's a worldlier vibe. And there's an adaptation to that that I think is interesting. You've got the glowing briefcase just like they have in Kiss Me Deadly, again, Different story, updated in an interesting way. I feel like the references in this one, for a guy who for whom the references are so much of the persona, if nothing else, um, that's something which just works better in this movie. Um, Matt, thoughts on Pulp Fiction? I have more after this, clearly, but I figure this is this is one one I know you have probably seen even more than I have, honestly. Um. Maybe. That's possible, I guess, but I don't know for sure. Um, I think every guy our age has actually seen it eight or nine times just because. Does that seem about right? Yeah, probably. Okay. I don't think I'm that high. I've definitely seen Reservoir Dogs more, but that's... I don't know. That one just speaks to me in a different way. Um, I think Pulp Fiction is great. I think it is definitely better than 94th, <laughs> which is a Another sort of one. Runny. Sorry, go ahead. This is another one in our long string of what on earth is this doing down here? Here we are again. Yeah, the 90s is... Is I, loaded. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I'm looking ahead now, and I can already envision your rant in two two episodes from now. Oh, yeah. Now there's going to be a minor rant there. Too. It's, it's very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. Like, the AFI... I don't know, just this back end here is just absolutely stacked. Um, Pulp Fiction, I think, is a great film. I think everything Tim said is true. I think it's the, I think it is so, I think it is such a classic that it has that effect of Tarantino 
I think maybe to some degree didn't really know what to do after it, so he kind of went in on a lot of the same things, and that is so kind of crystal clear in what it's doing and wears its influences on its sleeve like that. And then that sort of becomes the punchline as it's done more and more. Like, I think there's an argument to be made that this movie is impactful and influential to the point where it becomes what it's doing so well becomes a joke eventually. Um, but I think we can go back to this movie and remember that no, in 94, this was incredibly um, innovative and really doing some new and, and deeply interesting things. And I, I, I mean, I think I like it better than you, Tim, but I don't know that I'm not going to be someone to go on the internet and start arguing with a bunch of film circles about Pulp Fiction being the greatest thing ever. But I just think it's fun to watch, which is something to say about a pretty long and like totally fractured sequentially movie. Um, but all the bits work to me, like all the different storylines converging. Um, and I think there's just a, a cast of interesting characters here and a lot of great directorial and um, story choices. So to me, this is still an impressive film. It's definitely the best of the three you mentioned, and it's certainly better than the 94th best American film. Um, I, I, I mean, I think that's ultimately the, the best thing I can say about it, that even all these years later and knowing all the baggage that Tarantino has, it's still an exciting movie to watch. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to come across as a as like a Pulp Fiction hater or even a Tarantino hater because I enjoy the majority of his movies. It's just he's one of those people who the Internet, the Internet is made of guys in their late 30s and early 40s who grew up with this and, and get get hyped about it. And, you know, you sort of want to like calm it down. But this is one of my favorite movies. It is a movie I have enjoyed since the first time I saw it when I was in, like, high school, and it has stuck with me since then, and it has always been a real delight to watch, even if I, like, go into it occasionally and think, is this the time when I'm not blown away by it, and it's never happened? This is another one of those where I'm just like, every time this gets me. Every time I love what's happening, I am entertained, and I think what he's doing as a director is really exciting and has so much vitality to it. Um, which is not like the only thing, but like, this is the kind of movie which is kinetic and, and fun in that way. And it grabs you, uh, because I don't know, even, even the eighth or ninth time, like, you know, what's happening, but it still feels surprising. It still feels, it still feels, um, like it just sort of popped up around the corner at you in a very cool way. Um, and, and it is a thrill to watch. And part of that is in the editing, and part of that is in the unusual story structure, which is not new or anything, but, like, it's something that you have to have a certain amount of courage to try and pull off, and he does, and it's it's absolutely great the way it is. This would be a much less interesting movie if it were just purely chronological. Um, I think, just real quick, another thing that speaks to how good the movie is <clears throat> throughout is like if we ask people what's the standout scene in Pulp Fiction, or like what's your favorite scene, you'd get five, six, seven, eight different answers. Like I can think of a bunch offhand that could be options for that, and understandably so. Like I don't know that I have one because there are so many choices, but 
I think if you just <clears throat> if we polled people like what's the best pulp scene or pulp fiction scene, there's several I could rattle off immediately as potential choices. Tim has his thinky face on. I'm curious. <laughs> I mean, I know what my favorite is. The best one is a little harder, but my favorite one is always going to be, oh man, I shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> which, which slays, pardon the pun, every single time. <laughs> I... Yeah, like, just that one, but just thinking of the standout scenes, I mean, you have the, <clears throat> the the fast food talk between Travolta and Jackson, um, Jackson holding up the entire room after the fast food talk, um, Jackson in general just being eminently quotable, um, his Deliriously going through quotable. the Bible verse at the end, um, of course, the pocket watch with walk-in, um, <clears throat> the, the samurai sword, as you mentioned, the gimp, um, I like the fixer is always interesting to me. Like that one sort of comes I back to me pretty that. quickly. Um, and then of course, Travolta and Thurman together with the adrenaline shot, the dance when she says square and it actually comes up on the screen. Like there's so many moments that could stand out here as like the Pulp Fiction moment um, that it becomes hard to know like, okay, well, which one is it? But I think that that's part of what makes the movie so strong that it's not tied to like one moment, but there are so many great ones that stand out. Yeah. So this one's, this one is definitely his Godard one, but you liking Reservoir Dogs, the movie for you. Have we talked about this? Have we talked about which French movie you're, you're going to like? Maybe. Maybe. What movie am I going to like? You're going to like Le Doulo, D-O-U-L-O-S, the Jean-Pierre Melville movie. It's Reservoir Dogs, but French and 30 years older. So, like, that's that's the one for you. Like, the, the, the influences in. are so strong, and when you see them, you, you, like, can't unsee them. But especially in this earlier stuff, it feels exciting when he's doing it, as opposed to tired. Like, his update on Melville is exciting. His update on Godard is exciting. His update on Sergio Leone in 2015 like that's a different that's a different thing so yes again i'm not i'm not a tarantino hater i am i am someone who enjoys a whole lot of his work um this most of all this this one above all the other ones for me all right so that takes us to our theme for this and i changed my theme just a smidge at the last minute um because i wanted to accommodate another movie. Um, so instead of just being 90s Los Angeles, our theme for this one is Once Upon a Time in Los Angeles, which I think Tarantino himself would, would appreciate a little bit. Um, Pulp Fiction is a very quintessential Los Angeles movie. Um, and I think it's not any more like the real LA than what Godard is depicting is like the real Paris, you know, or the real Mediterranean countryside in a movie like Pierre Le Fou. Like, it's it's this sort of dramatized, idealized, gussied up, varnished version, which of course is what Los Angeles should be. There's something really wonderful about the fact that Los Angeles in this movie is everything that you need it to be at the moment's notice, even if that's not necessarily what it is for someone else. So 
you think about these three different parts of the movie and part of the Los Angeles that's being depicted is the Wallace home, uh, which is this mansion out somewhere. Uh, you have that 50s retro diner, which I have come to enjoy more and more every time out. Um, at, at first, I used to just like it because of Steve Buscemi, and now I'm like, oh yeah, I know who Mamie Van Doren is, ha 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 you know, like, it's it's little things. But, like, there's something about that 50s diner which is so appropriate for Los Angeles, which is trying to relive the 50s over and over again. Uh, and I say that with a great deal of judgment in my voice when you think about things like segregation. Um, this sort of lily-white diner that they go to for the 50s is pure nostalgia, but it's nostalgia for an America which is only safe for white people. But that's a form of Los Angeles, and that's a form of Los Angeles that a lot of these people prize. Um, there's that middle section where Butch is... Who knows where he is in the taxi, right? Like, what is that? <laughs> where are I, they? I was just thinking about that, and particularly when he's sneaking back in to, to get the watch, and sort of the long takes that happen there of him just walking and kind of sneaking through alleyways and past the fences and like <clears throat> I don't know that's another scene that stands out to me just like it's riveting in an odd way and it's sort of like okay well we've had the the glitz and glamour nostalgia for 50s white stardom part of LA this seems more like <clears throat> I don't know probably a south Los Angeles or something like that like I assume so. it's certainly a what's the right way it, it's a certainly not glitzy it's just sort of a very beige and like it's like bricky public depressed area sorry what like bricky public housing or something where there's yeah. there's you know it's weeds it's not palm trees it's it's weeds and, and scrub grass like it's and that's its own form of los angeles with like bad motels and and boxing matches that get fixed and stuff like um I mean, even the Gimp is housed in what looks like a shopping center somewhere. That's its own Los Angeles. And then there's the Los Angeles of the diner, which is, I don't know, sort of... I, that diner, I don't know what it is. I've always thought that was, like, such an interesting-looking place. And, of course, if I went to a diner like that, I'd be like, oh, look, it's a diner. Good job, me. But, like, it's not just that there's a holdup. And it's not just that there's interesting monologues about being the shepherd or something. I don't, there's something about that diner that like is kind of a more than larger than life thing. And that's, that also feels like an LA to me, like things that, that are boring and prosaic still feel big, still feel exciting somehow. And I think, right. That fits with, um, Jackson's speech at the end too, but maybe it plays on that sense of, Los Angeles as like all of this possibility is inherent to all of it that like anything could happen at any moment and, and like this the diner is the point where stories are finally converging uh, to the end and I'm sort of thinking about what you said about the the other the 50s theme diner as well and it's like well if you're in Los Angeles like theoretically anyone famous could stop by at any point and our paths could cross and like that's this weird point of convergence and then this diner that's going to be the scene of a holdup. <clears throat> Maybe it's playing on that vibe as well. I hadn't really thought about that before, but that's interesting to me. You're, that's something I was I actually had not thought about myself. This idea that anyone could show up at any time, because of course they could. That's what Los Angeles is. Um, 
I think what's wonderful about this movie is, I mean, there are so many wonderful things about this movie, but like the thing that I think keeps getting me is that Los Angeles is a kind of El Dorado. Like it's this mystical city, this golden city, a city with magic. And so it can be different for all of these characters. You can have Vincent Vega who's driving along and it's Disneyland with bullets and he has his own little dope fiend Cinderella he's got to get home. And with Butch, it's this sort of gritty, underclass world, which is underclass in a very modern way. Is underclass not in, like, you know, bombed-out Europe. Like, it doesn't look like the world is falling in, but it looks it looks small and plain and unpleasant. And then you have, for Samuel L. Jackson, who just seems to fit in anywhere. <laughs> like, his Los Angeles is one where, appropriate for someone who seems to want to, like you know, walk the earth, as he puts it. Um, he seems like he will fit in anywhere, whether he's out in the valley or if he's in this diner where where all sorts of possibilities can come up. So, like, it's a movie that traverses much of much of the valley and so much of the city, and it it just feels like one of those... And this it's saying a lot, because there are so many movies set in Los Angeles that feel essential, but, like, this one really does feel like not just a great movie, but a great once upon a time in L.A., here's the storybook idea that's part of it. And I think that's very special, too. Other thoughts about Pulp Fiction before we get to our pairings? Not really. I think this is another one where, like, the risk is us just kind of gushing about it at a certain point. But I think thinking about it as an L.A. movie in particular is smart. Um, And... Right, Hollywood is there. L.A. is a constant presence in, in films, but thinking about the city as a, a varied and a varied character and a point of possibility, I think, is interesting and a smart way to go about this. All right, so I have our two movies in this sort of Once Upon a Time in Los Angeles beat. Uh, one of them is from the same year. And that is Jan de Bont's 1994 thriller, Speed, or as I like to call it in my, in my home, Spid. Um, I don't know exactly what the origin of that is, but it just sort of comes out. So I, I did watch Spid a couple weekends ago, and I was like, yeah, this is what I want for this. And then the other one is one that is way less seen and not a thriller. Uh, it's the 1983 Charles Burnett movie, My Brother's Wedding. Um, which is sort of a cornerstone of uh, black independent film in, in our cinematic history. So these are, these are two very different movies. Um, but I think both of them fit into this once upon a time in Los Angeles idea. There's sort of a, a great story, a great literary kind of telling that's going on in both of them. And I realize that sounds ridiculous for Spid, which is a movie in which the bus must go 50 miles an hour or the bomb will go off. And that's that must seem such a weird thing to say, but this is a movie that has a lot going on. And I think the first thing that's important is this idea that it's a movie about driving. In Los Angeles, if you're not driving around in this movie or in your movie about the city, then what are you doing? Because Los Angeles I think of as like the quintessential drive-around city of the country, Um, in part because the traffic is terrible, in part because the freeways keep getting into movies. Um, 
in part because everything is so distant and so far apart that you have to drive to be part of it. Um, but this is, there can't be that many other cities where the plot of speed even makes sense. Um, where, I mean, <laughs> hold on. I think I just said on record that the plot of speed made sense. Did you hear me say that? You, you implied it, which I'm excited for. That's rough. Uh, but imagine that happening in like New York. It can't happen in New York. It's impossible. I I read a something about Seinfeld once, and I was just like, the big mistake that Seinfeld made, it, it wasn't like a hit piece on the show, but it was just like, the mistake that it made was having them drive so much, because no one drives that much in New York City, and it's like, yeah, that's right, but in LA, everyone drives. You have to. <laughs> this is, I, I think this is sort of... Uh, I mean, I don't want to, like, put it on my list of great car chase movies or anything, but look, as far as L.A. fantasies go, what is more L.A. fantasy than a bus jumping an overpass? I can't think of anything. That's got to be it. That's got to be the number one fantasy is what ridiculous thing can I do with my vehicle, and how can I make that part of, like, this L.A. story? So... Again, this is, like, one of the true high-concept movies of all time. But essentially, it's the story of a cop who knows that there's a bomb on this bus, who boards the bus, which is, first of all, what? And second of all, he does it multiple times. He gets, like, on and off the bus like he's getting on and off at stops. Like, Keanu Reeves just, he can't decide where he wants to be. It's very exciting. Um... So th this whole time now, I just want to talk about Gone in sixty seconds with speed as two L.A. car jumping chase movies, but <clears throat> that's not where we're going today. Sorry, continue. <laughs> now it's I, I understand entirely. So like, <laughs> you have Keanu Reeves getting on and off the bus. Uh, the bus driver gets shot. We'll talk about it, and the bus driver is replaced by Sandra Bullock in a role. Look, I'm. I'm not known for my Sandra Bullock affection, but... <laughs> Certainly not in your fantasy league. <laughs> no. Look, I've got a long-standing animus, but... But... Sandra Bullock is really good in this. Like, I, I get what everybody else is talking about when I watch this movie. I'm like, oh, she seems spunky and fun. I'm like, where has that been? I don't know. But she is the one who has to take over from the bus driver, and... It turns out that the person who's bombed the bus, or at least set up the bomb on the bus, is this guy played by Dennis Hopper. Great casting. Dennis Hopper is also terrific in this. And Dennis Hopper would absolutely put a bomb on a bus. I mean, he's sort of a quintessentially LA figure too, in a yeah. in ways that are that are so interesting. And what's What's wild about that is that he's not just some guy who bombs things. He is a former LAPD officer. And I would like to point out to the world at large, not that they need my help here, but this movie is, like, squished into a very small part of L.A. cop history between Rodney Kane and O.J. Simpson. And it is fascinating to watch a movie in which the LAPD, two years after... Rodney King are portrayed as these kinds of heroes. And in fact, the movie is, a, I think, is really cognizant of it. There's a moment where 
where Keanu gets up in front of the bus, like, early on and says, forget that I'm a cop, because, like, this one Hispanic dude, like, pulls a gun. Very strange moment. Not my favorite part. And that's how the bus driver gets shot, but, like, on this very diverse bus, Keanu Reeves, who is a diverse person, um, gets up and says, don't think of me as a cop, I'm just the guy who's trying to fix this, leave your, you know, your, your thoughts about that behind. And it is, it's just a very interesting way to go to make not just the heroes of this story police officers, but also the villain is a former police officer. There is a, there's a strong symbolic moment here, um, which I don't think is getting enough discussion, frankly. I mean, it's, it's fun to say, Spud, the mo the movie with the, the 50 mile an hour bus, but like, there is, there's some genuine thought, and again, not like that much thought because it's a 90s action movie, but there is, there is a tension being directed to this, this difficult social issue in this movie that I, that I find very, uh, engaging. Um, I think the problem is that the legacy of the movie is not that, even though it should be at least in some part, but it is just a movie that people remember as Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock drive a bus around real fast or else it, or else it blows up. And like, right. So when you were describing it as sort of the storyboard, like outline version of it, it's hilarious. And that's what people remember more than, Oh, this is actually part of a, all political moments are fraught, but like a particularly fraught one um, with the LAPD. And like, it's, it recognizes its own positioning and it's leaning into that in interesting ways that should come up, but I think it'll always be remembered as just the bus go fast movie. When I saw this, I was a little shocked that bus go fast movie took a long time to get to bus go fast. That like, it begins with this extended sequence where Dennis Hopper is trying to like get a ransom out of the out of the city so he won't bomb an elevator full of people. And there is an extended sequence at the beginning of this, and it's not such a bad action sequence because it, you know, if you listen to a couple episodes ago about tight quarters, we could have talked about it there. Um, but it's a it's a sequence in which the cops played by Keanu Reeves and Jeff Daniels have to work super, super hard to get these people alive from the elevator before it, before it goes out. Um, so it's, it's very active about like, let's set up our heroes here. Let's set up these heroic cops. Um, big deal about the ceremony and like, what are you going to argue against people getting killed in an elevator? Like, no. So it's a movie, which is, which is thoughtful about that. It is a movie, which I think is also pretty good at depicting LA as sort of a, a racially, ethnically diverse place. Um, the bus is filled with all kinds of people. It's, it's got people of multiple races on it. It's got people from different backgrounds. Most of them are obviously not like rich or anything because if they were rich, they wouldn't be on the bus. So presumably there's sort of a middle-class working class or, or lower kind of idea here. Um, You've also got that tourist played by Alan Ruck, who's just like, when the bus eventually gets back to LAX, he's like, oh no, this is the airport. I know the airport. It took me three hours to get out of here. <laughs> it's a very funny moment. But the bus is filled with, with definitely kind of a slice of life. Um, 
I don't know. In the in the early '90s, I don't think I don't think it's crazy to to have expected that this would have been like a primarily white bus if you had like just left it to the producers or whatever. Um, I think it's I think it's good that it's trying to give a more thoughtful perspective on on who's on the bus and and where they might be going and a realer picture of la in general like yeah it's i mean certainly parts of it are lily white as you said about pulp fiction but i mean in general the type of demographic that's going to be on a bus anywhere is different and la itself as a multicultural place um there's a lot of different people and you know you go to a new section of the city and it's totally different in the makeup in itself so it's good to see thought in terms of you know who's actually populating a bus like this and not pretending that rich white people use it because that's just false <laughs> yeah again like this is this is again the the movie where bus jump and overpass right so like it's it doesn't have to be like the most realistic thing in the world but you know they're trying a little bit they're they're not they're not just you know making it seem like it's the 50s back in LA this is not the diner this is not the special diner where you can get the uh the what's its butt the the Amos and Andy milkshake you know like this is I, this I appreciate is it because this is a movie about violence extracted on and from others and collateral damage and this is a much better look at well if a disgruntled uh, and violent LAPD officer did want to bomb a bus who would actually be implicated in that <clears throat> or if they were trying to you know sink an elevator like who would actually be in that space so like who's actually who is this violence actually being taken out on and and yeah, so like I th- we've sort of been beating around the bush on this, but like the people who would suffer are not, you know, all the the rich the rich folks. It's it's people who have to ride the bus for one reason or another. So that's something it's thinking about too. Um, I don't have a lot of other thoughts on speed, but I do. Spud. Spud. I do wanna. I do wanna say that when the bus finally does explode, spoiler, I said, "Oh, I'm gonna miss the bus." I think it's I think it's just a testament to how emotionally invested I was in the story. Like this is this is a movie I've kind of been making fun of for most of my life, but I do think it's a genuinely good movie. And again, I can get emotionally connected to anything, but like I don't know. The bus and I went through a lot together. <laughs> Not as much as that bus and Keanu Reeves. <laughs> No, Keanu Reeves definitely touched way more of the bus than I did. That's that's absolutely the case. I think like, it's a big dumb premise, and I mean that in a very positive and fond way, but there's a lot of heart to this movie. It is a movie that they're literally not making anymore. Yeah. It just it, it's not it's not in the picture. Alright, so that's that's Spud. Um and we are going to move on to a movie that's not like Speed at all. Um, this is My Brother's Wedding, again, by Charles Burnett. Um, Charles Burnett has three movies that I think really could have worked out incredibly well for this. Uh, but I decided to go with My Brother's Wedding sort of out of a process of elimination. Um, 
Killer of Sheep is his first one. And Killer of Sheep, if you're not one of those film Twitter people, is was uh, at first a student film from when he was in school in the 70s. And it's really a remarkable movie. Um, it's it's in black and white. It's a lot of non-professional actors. It's, it's a very sort of sprawling look in a short package. Um, shot really exceptionally like it's a it's a truly great movie and it just kind of felt wrong for this topic i don't know that i could explain why it's not baroque okay i can explain why it's not like a a big baroque story it's it's got much more intimate smaller moments and a lot of it is done in terms of camera work as opposed to story so that's one that's like one that i would definitely we may see it again later and that's true for the other one i'm going to talk about too we may see it again later uh, but just not for this. And then the other one I thought about real hard back when this was just 90s L.A. was his 1990 movie To Sleep With Anger, um, which is about a family of African-American folks in Los Angeles and a guy they used to know from way back when uh, shows up and things sort of go awry a little bit. Um, and that's also a really exceptional movie, but I thought about it and I, it's it's more about diaspora than it is like an L.A. story. So I, I wanted to leave that alone for this too. But I did want to talk about Charles Burnett, who is, for me, one of the great directors for a location ever. He, he sort of understands Los Angeles in a really important way. And I think it's important to, like, when we're thinking about this period of time from, you know, 1983 to 1994, when all of these movies are, are happening... That, like, it's not just a playground of white fantasy. It's a, it's a place where lots of people of color live. And this is a movie that's set in South Central um, with a family that's been there for a while. They are, like, a working-class family. Um, the Mundys, they own a dry cleaners. And they have two sons. And the older one is a lawyer and he's getting married to another lawyer from a sort of prominent well-to-do african-american family and the other one is the main character and his name is pierce and pierce is kind of a nobody (laughs) and it's like he's not dumb but he's also not interested in trying to move up and he's very resentful about his brother, for one thing, he's, and, and he's resentful of the people he's about to be related to because he looks at them and thinks they don't have any troubles, they've never had any troubles, um, and he says, I don't like people who haven't had troubles. I don't like people who haven't had to, to scuffle and, and work harder and struggle in their lives. Um, so that's sort of the, that's one of the major things that happens in here, um, as, a, as sort of a once upon a time in L.A. thing, what I like about it is the way that it sort of redirects you. It's Much of it is sort of this, this story about Pierce and his buddy Soldier who just got out of prison. Um, and Soldier, when, when he's getting out of prison, Pierce is like going to different businesses and like asking if they can give Soldier a job. And one guy's like, if it were you, I'd give you a job. But soldier, I can't give a job. And then another guy says, soldier, he's getting out of jail. And Pierce is like, yeah. And the guy says, 
nope, they should keep him there. <laughs> That's the kind of guy this is. This is someone who's like, he's not a good guy. Um, he's sort of a dangerous person. He's um, not good with women. There's some. There's a genuinely scary scene in there. Um, actually, there's multiple genuinely scary scenes in there uh, with his interactions with women. So no, maybe he's not the guy who should be getting out of jail. Um, but there is this moment, this, again, Burnett was, was such a good director for images. And there's this image where like, it's dark. The two of them are like at a canal or something. I don't know what the exact word is. It's like sewer runoff essentially. And they get to talking about it and you can just see their profiles in this darkness and only just... And Soldier, like, is asking about another guy, and, and Pierce is telling him, like, oh, he's dead, he got shot. Um, and he's like, it's just us left. And there's this sort of melancholy in there. Even though, like, even though, obviously, working at his parents' dry cleaner is not his dream for the rest of his life. Even though, like, working there is not exactly what he, like, wants forever, um... He, he's actually, like, lost another job and is, like, stuck at home. But... Katie says hi, everyone. Katie says, this is a movie that I want to talk about, too. Um, he is he is someone who is very melancholy about losing the streets. And it's something... We see him there a lot. There's a lot of action um, going on through South Central. There's this one scene where, like... He and Soldier are chasing a guy through alleyways and across yards. Um, <laughs> they are, they're like running through everywhere. And you just get this like incredible sense of, of a Los Angeles that's, that's not wide open at all. And it's not even like wide open to roads. It's, it's sort of, you have to know the back ways to get through. You have to be able to climb a fence if you're going to get around. You're going to have to be able to duck through something else if you want to get around. And that's something that's really exciting about the movie to see is that he's filming a part of Los Angeles that most people aren't going to see in an LA movie again until like John Singleton until boys in the hood or until South central, which comes out the year after that. Like this is someone who is putting eyes to a part of Los Angeles. That's not dream factory material. Um, that's not fantastical, but that's like very real and lived in. So yeah, it's just it's a part of Los Angeles that doesn't often get into the movies, but which is essential if you're going to understand what Los Angeles is. Um, and it's it's something that's you know it just it just hadn't been shot all that much before. Um, there's there's other things about this that I like as sort of a, as an LA movie. I like that everyone has a gun, um, which sounds ridiculous, but Everyone in this movie has a handgun, um, and there are multiple scenes where where people are about to pull their handgun and use it on someone, or be prepared to use it on someone. Um, and it's a movie that, as far as I can remember, doesn't have any white people in it. Um, it's a it's a movie where you just see people prepared with their guns for trouble. Um, and there are three separate instances I can think of. One of them, Soldier and Pierce are roughhousing. They go through someone's fence. The guy sees them. He goes back in the house. They scatter. He comes out with a gun. Um, there's a sequence 
where Pierce is going to see his, his like grandparents who are very old and need a lot of help. Um, and he knocks on the door and someone inside gets a gun out. And I'm like, are they going to shoot? The first time I saw this, I'm like, they're going to shoot Pierce. <laughs> like, he's here to help. <laughs> but they have the gun for that. And the last one, Pierce's mother, is running this dry cleaners. And there's a guy coming in and she can, like, smell she want that they're, like, trying to hold up the place. And she's, like, getting ready for it. And the guy knows. It's not just that everyone has a gun. It is not just a question of everyone in this story having a gun. It is that everyone knows when someone's going to use a gun on them. And that's kind of the thing about it that seems really... I don't know. Nobody ever says anything about it. But, like, it's something about the, the story that stands out because you just, you just sort of know. All of them just sort of instinctively know that that's happening. Uh, even though there's no gunplay in the movie, um, it's it's just something that everybody gets. I like that the movie does a really nice job of talking about social class in Los Angeles as well, um, which is something that you don't see a lot of in L.A. Like, there's a lot of, and not that you don't see social class, but, like, L.A. movies tend not to think about it very hard. People tend to belong to one or the other. Um, and in this movie... Not only is there a difference in social class uh, that's being discussed, but it's a difference in social class even though these people are of the same racial background. Which, even in, even in like heralded movies about Los Angeles and about black people in Los Angeles, there are not a lot that consider them in different groups. There are not a lot of movies that think about like, there is there are African Americans who come from this social group and there are African Americans who come from that social group or whatnot. This one is very pointed about it. Um, and the family the rich family that Pierce's brother is married into is the Du Bois family, which is, you know, yeah, Matt is chuckling for a reason. Um, and even so, like aside from the the presumed reference to the guy, um, there's something a little hoity-toity about them. They have their own maid. Um, they have wine at dinner and all of this, and, and Pierce's dad is, like, sucking it down. He's like, I wish you had some old granddad instead. Like, there's, he's much, much earthier. And it's an embarrassing scene on one hand just because Pierce's family is not good at handling this kind of thing, but it's embarrassing, too, because Pierce insists on being class-conscious at this dinner and talking about, you know, lawyers or the, like, scum-sucking whatever, like, whatever people say about lawyers, knowing that his future sister-in-law is very proud of her legal career. And it's something that the movie is, is very mindful of. Um, I have other things I could talk about, but I was going to check in here. Is this, this movie director one that you're familiar with, or is it good that I'm going into some detail here? I, it's good for me. I I knew nothing about this movie. Um, I think Charles Burnett I've heard of before, but not in any real capacity. So this is all pretty new to me. Um, I, I, I'm I'm interested. I I'm, I like the connections to Pulp Fiction in the category in terms of these different strata of LA in particular um, and 
I mean, I'm a sucker for class consciousness stuff anyway, but like thinking about class and race in more nuanced intersectional ways. Um, but yeah, no, like the, the details are not like redundant for me here, certainly, because this is not one I know at all. Yeah, this one, it has like sort of a tortured release history. Um, I don't think Burnett had the final cut on it for a while. And of course, when it got to theaters, like it wasn't getting any kind of press and it wasn't his movie anymore. Um, so the the movie that he wanted to make is on Criterion. So if you were interested in this and you have that service, then you should go check it out for sure. Um, the last thing I was going to think I was going to mention for this movie um, has to do with soldiers last night. So soldier dies in a car wreck and it's one that we are led to believe that he caused um, just mathematically. We can guess based on what he's doing and how he's been that he's responsible. Um, and the photography on his last day is really stunning. Um, so much of this movie, like I've been saying, is in this between spaces. Like, Pulp Fiction, a lot of it is driving in between spaces. Speed is driving in between spaces. This movie has people walking and running in between spaces much more than driving. Driving is sort of secondary for a lot of these characters. And you get this, this moment where you can, like, you're on top of this hill somewhere in South Central, and you're looking out and you're seeing, like, big buildings somewhere else in this incredible smog haze. You know, those beautiful L.A. sunsets that are just pure pollution. And you can see it, and it's one of those shots that's... I, I gasped a little bit. Like, it's it's absolutely a beautiful thing. Um, and you can get this sort of shining city on a hill, the fantasy that everyone else in these movies always seems to know that Los Angeles is, but when you live there and when you're grounded there and when you're like Pierce and you feel stuck there, it, it doesn't seem quite so wonderful on the other side. It's something that you get the sense of longing, but also the sense that boy, that's far away. The very literal distant sense of boy, that's far away. And a, and a very, you know, figurative sense of it's not like here this is a different Los Angeles than the one that Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock are going to be driving around, even though they're not in the nicest places. And it's a different, it's a different LA than the one that Marcellus and Mia Wallace live in. So that shot for all, like if I were to think about it, maybe it's even like the best shot in all three of those movies. Um, but it's, it's a really stunning indictment I think it's an indictment and it's also introspective in ways that I find very, very appealing and very, very interesting. I think I'm ready for a choice actually, but do you want to say anything more about my brother's wedding in particular? Do any spieling or anything? No, I think I, I feel like if you have a choice in mind, I will not hold you back from it. Um, they're just, I think, Speed and My Brother's Wedding are just, they are not similar movies, so I think we will get a sense of how you are coming at this yourself from the choice you make, because they are not like one another, and neither one of them is really like Pulp Fiction either. No, that that definitely seems true. Uh, <clears throat> I was leaning towards Speed until the very end there, and actually that, that shot you were talking about and that sort of last point swayed me, so I'm going to go with My Brother's Wedding here. And because I like that sense of 
this movie is sort of a glimpse into LA, the once upon a time thing, but also a recognition of how vast it is in terms of space and literal sprawl in terms of class mobility. And I think now that I'm thinking about it all, both this and speed are doing really interesting things with mobility. Um, one, one of them much more literally, but also symbolically, um, my brother's wedding as more metaphorical, certainly, but with social mobility, I think both of them are doing, um, pretty cool things actually, but just that, like that idea of him looking out in LA as this polluted, toxic paradise all at once and how essential it is to travel through spaces all the time, but also how hard it is to get anywhere new. Um, and for class in particular, how hard it is. Like, this is the land of the dream. This is the land where you can make it, but can you? And uh, it seems like this movie is not, like, denying that, but it seems like it's actually digging into that question somewhat. And to me, that seems sort of essential to thinking about L.A. as a place, as a symbol, as as a product as well. Um so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going with my brother's wedding here, and I'm kind of sad to not see Speed go on. I was excited for the hilarity of that, but I think, <clears throat> to, to me, my brother's wedding has a bit stronger case for the category. Yeah, when I was watching Speed, I was, I was having this moment, because it was not on my original list, but about 45 minutes in, I'm like, I've got to get this in here. Like, it's <laughs> got to be one of the, the titles I, I at least offer. Um, and I am glad to have talked about it and it is not like as a true snob, it is, it is a, it is an absolute joy. Um, and I guess to bring this full circle back to Tarantino, um, the moment from once upon a time in Hollywood, which I think is still getting the most shine, you know, more than a year after it came out originally is the one where all of the the signs and everything come on in Los Angeles. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you may have seen the clip. Like it's it's definitely getting that kind of attention. Um, and it's just it's a I don't know. It's sort of beautiful in an American graffiti kind of way. But that's what that shot in my brother's wedding reminds me of. It's it's the the light at the end of the day, and. Instead of being a warm, fun, exciting light that drives, drives us, uh, dries? Pulls. That pulls us in. <laughs> My word. Instead of being the kind of warm thing... Are we all getting laundered here? <laughs> I don't know. There, is, there are some great laundry jokes in My Brother's Wedding, but we don't have to talk about all of them. Um... In, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, those lights come on and it's exciting and it's, and it's fun. And as the lights go off at my brother's wedding, there's something tarnished and ugly, but also intensely beautiful happening. Um, it's, it's really a special moment in that movie, and I think it does speak to the, the kind of things that Tarantino was thinking about. I don't know if he was thinking about them in 1994, but he was definitely thinking about them in 2019. So it's it's all of a piece to me. I can I can sense connections all the way through. Yeah, I can too, and I, I do want to say that 
I think speed is a lot deeper than people give it credit for, and it's just incredibly fun, and I'm sad to see it go, but I, I like, obviously I've never seen it before, as I said, but like, <clears throat> I like hearing about my brother's wedding, and it does seem of a piece, as you said, and I think um, it's a very um, worthy winner here, even if, right, these are just so different that it's hard to like connect them, but I think you did did so in a really interesting way well thank you and i want to point out that speed backwards is deeps so it is a deeper movie than i think we might have given it credit for speed is deeps all right so now that we're going to take advantage of the last ability to speak language that i've got so after thinking about this idea of once upon a time in los angeles which was brought to us by the afi selection of pulp fiction uh, by Quentin Tarantino, I offered up to Matt two choices, and they were Speed by Jan de Bont and My Brother's Wedding by Charles Burnett. And we are adding the latter to uh, the subtitles movie list. If you liked this episode and somehow you did not hear Matt's takes on Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville, which is the first half of this episode, definitely go back and check that out. I would also like to direct anyone who is interested in keeping up with our progress, uh, because at this point, there are more movies we have named than fit on one hand, so and more albums named than we can fit on one hand. So if you are interested in keeping up with that progress, we have a website, woo, that's subtitlespodcast.com. If you are interested in keeping up with us, learning more about our methodology, hearing about the weirdos who do this stuff and speak language good, um, you can check us out again, subtitlespodcast.com. That links you out uh, to our blogs, to our Letterboxd and Spotify, and you can sort of keep up with us as we do this. Thanks for checking in with us here. Hope to see you back again after you have checked out our website. See you all later.